Um, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive right in. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word that guides us. We are thankful for um, the responsibility you have given us to study, the, the instruction in your word that you've given us to be able to be ready to give a defense of the, the hope that lies within us. Uh, God, I pray that as a result of this study and really all the studies that we've been doing, that we would be more grounded, um, that we would know more what we believe, that we'd be able to recognize error more quickly, more precisely, um, that we would be more familiar with your word, and all for the purpose, God, of honoring and glorifying you with our lives. And um, God, we're not trying to learn this so that we can be better at winning debates or arguing. God, our, our, our purpose is to be able to, to know you better and to talk about, talk about our faith with others. God, we love you. We thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, uh, let me recommend a couple of books for, to you on the topic of Catholicism. One is Reasoning from the Scripture with Catholics by Ron Rhodes. If you're interested in that, again, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Catholics by Ron Rhodes. Um, and he has a series, Ron Rhodes has a whole series of books in which he addresses different belief systems. And so I've used some of these other books with Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, but this is one specifically on Catholicism. Um, the other one is called Are We Together by R.C. Sproul. Are We Together? It's a short book. Um, it's 120 pages. That's short. Huh? I, I, this is a long book. This is a short book. That's the way I look at it. Um, are we together? I'm recommending it anyway. Are We Together by R.C. Sproul. It is a little more technical. Um, this is more for if you're wanting to understand the theo theological differences. This is what this dives into. So it's shorter, but I think what Amber is talking about is it's, it's more in-depth. Um, it, it's a little deeper, and it's going to take you, you're not going to read this as quick. You're going to have to go slow and think, and, but it's very, very helpful. And so I've recommended this book to a number of people over the years. And so um, it's called Are We Together? A Protestant Analyzes Roman Catholicism. So again, if you're interested in it, you want to learn more about it, you, you, you kind of look forward to that challenging read, this, this may be something for you to uh, look into. All right, y'all ready? Let's do it, ready or not. All right, let me remind you of a couple things as we get started. Um, first of all, the importance of defining terms. Now, we have seen this over and over and over throughout our study on different cults, different world religions, that it is very likely that a cult or a religion that you are looking at or a person that you are talking to that is a, an adherent of another belief system, they are going to use similar terminology. We've seen this multiple times. For instance, we saw this when we were looking with um, or looking at Mormons. Uh, that you ask Mormons, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Their answer is going to be yes, but they believe that He is the created Son, that He was born, that He is the created Son of God, not that He is the coexisting Son of God. Um, you go to other religions, you ask them, do you believe in eternal life? They say yes, but what they really mean is they believe in reincarnation, so life never ends, it is eternal. Two different things, right? Same terms. And so what we have to do is to be sure that we are defining our terms. Now, when we come to the topic of Catholicism, we cannot stop that effort. 
of defining terms. When we come to Catholicism, we have to continue to define our terms. And Catholicism is the trickiest one out of everything we're looking at, and we'll explain why towards the end. Um, but let me give you a few interesting introductory facts about Catholicism. Here's A. There are 1.2 billion followers worldwide, and this is according to the Vatican. All right, 1.2 billion followers worldwide. Now, you remember way back at the very beginning um, that we said that there were several different Abrahamic faiths. Do you remember that? You're like, that was a few weeks ago. I don't know if I remember that. What we mean is there's several faiths that trace their belief system back to Abraham. This is one of them. B, there are 69 million followers in the United States. So this is up there with Hinduism, with Islam as a major belief system, major world religion. 69 million followers in the U.S., 1.2 billion adherents worldwide. C, and this is an important point, Catholics consider themselves to be Christians, and society refers to them as such. So whenever you're watching the news and you hear a newscaster say that there are, let's say, one and a half billion Christians worldwide, guess what they are including in that? They're, they're including Protestant Christianity, they're including um, Catholic Christianity, all of that is included. Now, as we're going to see, there are some big difference between Catholic Christianity, so-called Catholic Christianity, and Protestant Christianity. We are a product of the Protestant Reformation. All right, We are part of the Protestant Reformation that was a split from the Catholic Church, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But here's what I want you to know. When they use, when you hear the word Christian, many times you, we are all being lumped into one pot. Catholics, all Protestant denominations, even Mormons and Jehovah's Witness are, are grouped into that Christian category because if you go to a, a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, you say, are you Christian? What are they going to tell you? Yes. It's all grouped together. So just because someone says, hey, I'm a Christian, you have to ask, what do you mean by that? I mean, you hate to go up and say, what, what kind of Christian are you? I mean, you hate to do that, but in a real sense, you have to be careful because it is easy to use the same terms but mean completely different things by it. D, the word Catholic means universal. If you've ever studied some of the earliest creeds of Christendom, such as the Apostles' Creed, which is the earliest, the Apostles stated that we believe in the Catholic Church. What they meant by that, and that was written in 1-200 range, what they mean by that is not the Catholic Church as we understand it today. What they mean by that is the universal church or the entire body of Christ. Because when the Apostles' Creed was written, when they used the term Catholic, the Catholic Church hadn't even yet been organized. They simply mean universal. So do we believe in the universal church? Yes. yes. What we mean by that is we are believers and if you go to Africa, you go to India, you go to Saudi Arabia, you meet other believers, we are all part of the body of Christ. We are all part of the church, big C. We are a church, little c, but we believe in the existence of the church, big C. That makes sense? So any, any true believer you come across, even if you go to separate churches, you belong to the same church. You belong to the universal church, meaning the entire body of Christ. All right, number two. One of the things that we're doing through this is we're asking the question, how, do, how does this belief system add or take away from the Bible? How do they multiply the requirements for salvation? And how do they take away from the fact that Jesus was God? 
So we want to ask these questions of Catholicism, and I want to give you answers, and I've tried to substantiate everything I've said, and I'm actually going to read to you tonight, don't get excited, from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I know that looks exciting. I'm not going to read all of it. It's only 800 pages. It's a long book. Um, yeah, but look at all the words. Um, I'm gonna, Say what? Yeah, a little print. There you go. Um, so I'm going to read some of this. I want you to see, I, I, I don't want it to be, I don't want you to walk away thinking, well, that's what Jeremy thinks about it. I, I want you to know that this is substantiated, all right? So here's the next section. How do Catholics add or take away from the Bible? Here's the underlying truth. They do not view the Bible as the sole authority. That's crucial. Just like with, the, with Mormons, they have the Book of Mormon and they have Doctrines and Covenants. Just like with Jehovah's Witness, they have other writings that they put alongside of Scripture. Catholics do not believe the Bible is the sole authority, which means that there's other things that they bring in and put on the same level as Scripture. All right? um, one thing that's not on here, and I'll mention this first, is in their Bibles, in, our, in your Bible you have the New Testament, yeah. You have the Old Testament, and then you have the New Testament. Get the order right here. If you look at a Catholic Bible, there is another section included. Does anybody know what that is called? The Apocrypha. If you read in this, and I'm not going to read all of this, but on page 40 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and they're talking about the canon of Scripture, what is actually included in Scripture, they say that there are 46 books of the Old Testament and 27 for the New Testament. Now, do the math. What does that add up to? 46 and 27. Now, how many books are in the Bible? All right, they include the apocryphal books, books such as 1st and 2nd Maccabees, um, Syriac, Wisdom, other books of the Bible that they claim to be on the same level as Scripture. The Catholic Church believes that 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 the Apocrypha is inspired, that it is Scripture. And so they include it in their Bible, and they say it's part of the canon of Scripture. But beyond that, let me give you a couple other things. Here's A. They teach that the Pope is infallible. This belief became official in 1870. All right, They teach that the Pope is infallible. And I'm, I know you already have this quote, but I'm going to read it. We teach and define that it is a dogma divinely revealed that the Roman pontiff, the Pope, when he speaks by the divine assistance promised to him by blessed Peter, he is possessed of that infallibility with which the divine Redeemer will. This is from a Vatican council. What are they saying there? That when the Pope speaks on behalf of the church, he is infallible. All right. Do we believe that the Bible is infallible? Yes, we believe that the Bible is inspired by God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. What they have done is they're saying you have Scripture, and right along with Scripture, you have the Pope. When he speaks, he is also infallible. Whether he speaks on issues of Scripture or whether he speaks on issues not of Scripture, when he speaks, now they're careful to clarify, when he speaks on behalf of the church, he is infallible. Does that create any problems? Absolutely, it creates problems, all right? B, on the same wavelength, on the same line of thinking, they teach that tradition is equal to Scripture. They teach that tradition is equal to Scripture. Let me read, um, this is from, again, section 85 of um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. 
the task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, now catch this, whether it is in written form or in the form of tradition. So what have they said? How have they defined the Word of God? The written Word of God and tradition. They say both the written Word of God and tradition is the Word of God. On your outline, you see a couple other quotes. The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal, equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So what are they saying? Scripture, the Pope, tradition. All right, keep look, look down at the next quote. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single deposit of the word of God. So you ask a Catholic, what is the word of God? They're going to tell you, well, you have the written word of God, and then you have tradition. They believe and they teach, and that is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, page 97, that book I was reading from. They teach that if you want the word of God, the way that you have the complete word of God is through the written word of God as well as through tradition. All right, let me read this last one. The apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. This living transmission accomplished through the Holy Spirit is called tradition. All right, so throughout history, you have people who have been called to lead the church in various roles, and they've had various responsibilities. And through this, through their teaching, through their life, through how they have explained things, through what they have modeled through their life, they say that is tradition, and that tradition is equal to Scripture. So I go back up again. They do not view the Bible as the sole authority. All right, does that make sense? I mean, do, doesn't make sense as to why, but does it make sense what, what they have done? All right, so if you ask them, what, what is your authority? Depending on who you're talking to, some may say the written scripture. Some may say the authority of the Pope, which is an answer you get a lot. And some are going to say tradition. All right, so here's the problem with that. What happens, and I used to have a document and I couldn't find it that showed this. What happens when the teaching of written scripture contradicts with the tradition within the Catholic Church. They go with tradition. Because why? Anybody know what, what their reasoning is with that? A newer revelation is how they word it. It's, an, it, it's newer. So the, the new has more prominence than the old. All right. So that's the main... The way you summarize that is simply saying they do not view the Bible as their sole authority. And when you do not view the Bible as your sole authority, you open it up to all kinds of error. All right, So that's the first section. How do Catholics add or take away from the Bible? Concisely put, they don't view the Bible as their sole authority. Do we view the Bible as our... As our yeah, Ray. We're going to get to that. They're going to get to that. They view the succession and the line of popes as divine, tracing all the way back to who? Peter. So we're going to look at Matthew 16, 18 in a minute, which is a verse that is misused to say that Peter was the first pope, but it all begins there, and then they say there's a, div a, divinely, a, a divinely instituted line of popes, and since they are infallible, whatever they say is a clarification on what the written scriptures say. So they would not say they directly contradict it. They would just say they're clarifying and helping us to understand it. That's how they would answer that. All right? So how do... Yeah. Sorry. Oh, you're fine. It's like the apostles of tradition. Mm -hmm. um, so do they accept 
Yes, but they don't view it as infallible. It is trustworthy, but only the Pope is infallible. So they would say that what the bishops have to say is trustworthy and reliable, but they will not go as to say that it is infallible. Why? Well, with the worldwide church, how do you keep tabs on what everyone is saying? So only the Pope is infallible, but they do believe that they are trustworthy and reliable. Yeah. Yeah, there have been times in history where there's been one more than one pope when there were divisions within the church. That's a very good question. I have not researched. Do you know? Yeah, they they each there were three there were one time when there were three popes and they each said the other was the antichrist. So, I haven't studied that enough to know be able to give you a good answer. Um, but it is interesting. It, it creates this contradictory model, doesn't it? When you don't have your a sole authority like Scripture, it creates, it opens the door to confusion, um, such as in that situation. All right, let's move on to number three. How do Catholics multiply the requirement for salvation? Or maybe we should say, do Catholics multiply the requirements for salvation? I would say, yes, they do. A, they believe that initial justification is by infant baptism. They believe that initial justification is by infant baptism. Let's pause here before we read anything and define some terms. What do we mean by justification? Big theological word. What does it mean? Justified. What? what? Made right before God. I remember it like that. I remember when I was a teenager, somebody saying it like this. I'll never forget. Justified, just as if I'd never sinned. So when I stand before God because of the sacrifice of Christ, I have been justified. And when God looks at me, He sees me as holy and righteous instead of as rotten and sinful. I've been justified. I can now stand before God, and He views me as holy. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? If you're a believer in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of Christ. Why? You've been justified. All right? So they believe that initial justification is by infant baptism. Notice this quote. Since the New Testament era, the Catholic Church has always understood baptism differently, teaching that it is a sacrament which accomplishes several things, the first of which is the remission of sins, both original sin and actual sin. All right? It goes on, only original sin in the case of infants and young children, since they are incapable of actual sin, and both original and actual sin in the case of older persons. i got several issues with this. Um, Young children are not incapable of sin. (laughs) All parents and grandparents, what do you have to say to that? Amen, right? That is a reality. All right, so we understand, though, we would agree with, with, with one part of this, that there is both our sin nature, and then acts of sin. So when you are born and you are a day old, you are a sinner. Why? Because you have been born with a sin nature. And because you have been born with a sin nature, thereby you sin. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. Is everybody completely confused now? All right. You're a sinner, and because you are a sinner, you sin. The reason you commit acts of sin is because you are a sinner. Now, this is actually a big deal. If, if only your actions made you a sinner, what would you have to do to become right before God? Okay. What else? If, 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 if being a sinner is only about what you do, then you just need some good self-help help books. It's going to help you get your act together. And you know, if, if you stop sinning, then you, God's going to accept you. But the reality is our hearts are dark. Our hearts are sinful. 
Our hearts are desperately wicked. And so because of that, that is why we sin. So there's two sides of this. Here's what they say. So since we all are born with the sin nature, if an infant is baptized, that infant is cleansed of its sin nature. Okay? That infant is cleansed of its sin nature. If an adult is baptized, it is then cleansed of its original sin, its sin nature, as well as forgiven its individual sins that they have committed. So here's what they're basically saying. Let me summarize all this real concisely. They believe the way you, be, you can be, one of the ways you can begin a relationship with God is through infant baptism. The way that you can have salvation is through infant baptism. Because it is through infant baptism that your original sin is washed away, making you acceptable before God. In that arena, the sacrifice of Christ is not what is relied upon. It is the act of baptism. There's a problem with that, right? I mean, that that is contradictory to Scripture. Let's go on. They believe good works are necessary for justification. Again, using the term justification, just as if I've never sinned, right standing before God. Here's what Canon 24 from the Canon of Justification. I'm sure y'all were reading that the other day from the Council of Trent. If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works... But that said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase thereof. Let him be anathema. What does anathema mean? Cursed. Cursed. Let let, let them be damned is literally what it means. So here, I I know this this is a very wordy quote. It's hard to understand. When we were going through the book of James, we were going through the book of 1 John, we said very clearly that the works... The works that we do are the result of our relationship with Christ, right? You remember that? We work because we have been saved. We do not work in order to earn salvation. What they are saying right here is that if you believe that your justification, your salvation, your forgiveness, your relationship with God leads to your works, then you are to be cursed. So basically they're looking at us and saying, if you believe that your good works is the result of your salvation rather than your good works leading to your salvation or earning your salvation, you are to be anathema, you are to be cursed. So their view on works in relation to salvation is the exact opposite of what we believe the Bible teaches. So, so again, this is, a, this is a big difference. This is important. We would say the works that are evident in the life of a Christian are the result of a relationship with God. The reason you and I work is because we've been saved and we have been transformed. So God has changed us. We are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. We work because of our salvation. They very clearly and directly and unapologetically teach the exact opposite. Your works lead to salvation. If you want salvation, you must have good works. And if you do not have good works, you cannot have salvation. Canon 33 In Canon 33, in Canons on Justification, it says that if anything disagrees with it, and specifically their teaching on justification, they are to be damned. They're they're, they're blunt about it. All right? Now, the question is often asked, do all Catholics believe this? And we're going to get to that in a minute. The answer is no. And that's what makes this a little bit tricky, all right? So we'll get to that in a minute. Don't let me forget one of you, somebody, all of you, remind me to get into that in a minute because I, I, I want to present this fairly. C, they teach that one must believe in the Catholic Church to be saved. 
Vatican Vatican II declares the church as necessary for salvation. Listen to this quote from Pope John Paul II. One cannot believe in Christ without believing in the Catholic Church. Now, he's a pope. What do they believe about the pope? He's infallible. So this now becomes tradition, authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church. One cannot believe in Christ without believing in the Catholic Church. Sorry for the typo there. I just saw it. All right. You've got to believe in the Catholic Church according to them. All right, next section. How do Catholics take away from or minimize the fact that Jesus was God? Now, let's pause here for a second. We believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation, correct? We believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through the person of Jesus Christ, correct? We believe that Jesus is the resurrection, the resurrection and the life, correct? We believe that he is the door. If you're here on Wednesday evenings, you know that we've been going through these I am statements, all right? So we believe Jesus is the only way. So here's what I want us to understand before we dive into this. Any belief system or religion that says Jesus is not the only way to salvation or to a relationship with God then minimizes who Jesus was because, hey, he's one of many. What makes Jesus unique is the fact that he is the only way to to God. He is the only way to heaven. He is the only way to salvation. So if we start saying, well, we believe Jesus is, and this is, and we start adding all other options, what we've done is we have devalued the person and the work of Jesus Christ because he is one option of many. So this exclusivity, if we can use that term, of Christ is crucial. All right, so let's look at what they teach. A, they believe that both Jesus and Mary lived a sinless life. Now, who do we believe lived a sinless life? Jesus. Here's what they say. Mary was saved from sin in a most sublime manner. She was given the grace to be saved completely from sin so that she never committed even the slightest transgression. What are they saying? She was sinless. All right. They believe that that Jesus was sinless, but they also believe that Mary was sinless. What you're going to see through this is they put Jesus and Mary on the same playing field. B. They believe that Mary is the co-redeemer and co-mediator. All right, so what does that little prefix co mean? With, all right? So she is a co-redeemer with whom? With Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the redeemer. Who else would they say is the redeemer? Jesus is the mediator. Who else do they say is the mediator? Look, listen to this quote from Pope Leo. The recourse we have to Mary in prayer follows upon the office she continuously fills by the side of the throne of God as the mediatrix of divine grace, being by worthiness and by merit most acceptable to him, and therefore surpassing in power all the angels and saints in heaven. Where do they say she sits? Look at it. Beside the throne of God. Where does the Bible say Jesus sits? Beside the throne of God. Do you see what they're doing? All right, there's another problem with this. The Bible says in Hebrews, I don't remember the verse, it says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. How many mediators does it say there is? There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. I I think it's in Hebrews. Somebody might want to look that up. Anybody know where it is? It's in Hebrews? All right, somebody can find that. There's one mediator. Jesus is the only redeemer. He is the only mediator. There are not more than one. All right? See, 
They believe Mary was conceived without sin, is to be prayed to, is to be worshipped, and is the mother of God and queen of heaven. Now, why would they say that she is the mother of God? Think, think through this. That there's a logical reason why they would say this. Exactly right. Good job, Abbott. Jesus, do we believe Jesus is God? Do you believe that Mary was Jesus' mother? So Mary was God's mother. Do you see how they, how they put all that together? So on one hand, you're like, okay, I see what they're saying. Is Jesus God? Yes. Was Mary the mother of Jesus? Yes. Was Mary the mother of God? Well, I don't, let's not put it like that, right? So you understand, but that's a dangerous thing to say. Look at the quote here. Uh, I'm not going to read all this, but let me read some of it. Let, let all the children of the Catholic Church who are so very dear to us hear these words of ours. With a still more ardent zeal for piety, religion, and love, let them continue to venerate, invoke, and pray to the most blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, conceived without original sin, and since has been appointed by God to be the Queen of Heaven and Earth, and I'm going to read it all, and is exalted above all the choirs of angels and saints, even stands at the right hand of her only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. She presents our petition in a most efficacious manner. What she asks, she obtains. Her pleas can never be unheard. All right, this is from one of the popes. And what, what, what have we learned about the popes? Infallible. All right, infallible, according to them. Now, this is a very telling quote, right? I mean, this is a powerful quote. Everything that this quote says um, I would say I, I take issue with. All right, now let's, let's move on to a, some other. How are we doing on time? Oh, we're good. First Timothy two five. Okay, First Timothy two five. Thank you for looking that up. Um, oh, let's go through some other Catholic beliefs. And I want to tie all this together. I promise I'm going to let you out early. See, we're doing good, right? Other Catholic beliefs. A, Catholics consider Peter to be the first pope based on a misuse of Matthew 16, 18. If you have your Bibles, go with me there. Matthew 16, 18. Isn't this fun? I'm having a good time. Matthew 16, 18. Got to have your thinking caps on. All right, look at the verse with me, Matthew 16, 18. Here's what it says. Um, actually, I'm going to go with the verse 17 so we see the context. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this. Actually, you know what? Let's go back up to verse 13. I want you to see all this. I know. I'll just keep backing up and including more, don't I? When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. Here's our key verse. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. So they look at this. They say, Peter is the first pope because Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. They say Peter is the first pope. He is the foundation of the church. He is fulfilling his destiny that Jesus Christ said he was to have. But I think there's another way, a more 
correct way of understanding this. All right? If you go back and you look at verse 16, you see the declaration of Peter. Simon Peter answered, or when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. All right, he goes on, verse 18. He said that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So grammatically, there's a couple different ways that this could point. When he says, you are Peter, and on this rock, we have to ask the question, what is that phrase referring to? What are the options, do you think, in that text? Okay, referring to Jesus Christ. What else? His faith. I would say a little more precisely, his declaration. What was his declaration? You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. When Jesus, in my opinion, and I believe this firmly, when Jesus looked at Peter and said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, he was saying, you are Peter, and on your declaration that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of the living God, that will be the foundation of the church. And I think if you look throughout history, the continual, steadfast, everlasting foundation of the church is rooted in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the Son of God. You take away those truths, the church crumbles and falls. That is the rock. That is the foundation on which the church is built. Not on the person of Peter, but on the belief or the declaration of Peter. Does that make sense? So when you look at this and you see Jesus or you talk to someone and they say, Peter is the first pope because Jesus said, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Back up a couple of verses and look at what Peter said. Peter's whole focus was not on himself. His whole focus was not on his position. His whole focus was not on what he could do and what he could accomplish. Peter's whole focus was on Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation of the church. That makes sense? Okay. So when I say there that Catholics consider Peter to be the first pope based on a misuse of Matthew 16, 18, I want you to understand what I mean by a misuse. They highlight the wrong thing. Rather than highlighting the belief of Peter, they highlight the person of Peter. And because of that, I think it's led, um, it's created a lot of issues. All right, B. Yes, because after this, Jesus gives his, not just Peter, and this is a crucial point with this. Verse 9, he asked if that's how we would also explained verse 19 which says I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven notice verse 20 keep reading what does it say and he gave the disciples so this authority that he gives is not just given to Peter it is given to all the disciples again reiterating that it's not about Peter himself yes right Once they, become, once they become the pope, when they speak on behalf of the church, then they are infallible. So they acknowledge that uh, Pope John Paul II, um, when, he was, when he was in um, control, when he was the pope, but prior to his papacy, him getting that position, he was fallible. Through the ceremony of him becoming the pope, that is when then when he speaks on behalf of the church, he is infallible. Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. B. There are many teachings that many, even within the Catholic Church, will acknowledge are not taught in Scripture. They hold to these based on the authority of the church tradition, such as mass, penance, and purgatory. Those are three examples. 
What is purgatory? Let's define some of these. What is purgatory? Oh, Larry said a holding cell. It's a good way. I've never heard it put like that, but I will remember that. It is a place of purification to where when you are not quite holy enough to go to heaven, you can go to purgatory where you can endure purification to where you are finally at acceptable level to go to heaven. All right, what is, um, what is penance? Yeah, it's stuff you do to make up for the sins you've committed, basically. All right. What is mass? Okay. What all is included in the church service for Catholics? The Eucharist. They have seven different things. Uh, we're not going to go through all seven of them. That's another lesson completely. But they have a lot of elements that are included in their mass, in their service, um, that they will acknowledge this is not... This is not in Scripture. This is tradition. Um, when I was in every country I've been in, with the exception of the Philippines, well, not every. Let me back up. Several countries, Costa Rica, Mexico, Guatemala, when I've been there, I've, we've taken the time to go into the main Catholic church in the area. And by the way, the Catholic church in these areas is by far the nicest building in the whole city, in the whole town, by far. I mean, they're beautiful buildings. Um, I took pictures with my Polaroid camera, if any of you ever want to see them. Um, but when you go in there, they have this one corner, and on this, this one corner is just filled with hundreds of candles, and the, what allows you to light a candle is if you pay money, and we pay money, and you light a candle, and you pray for one of your loved ones who has passed on before you, in case they're in purgatory, you can pray for them and get them out of purgatory a little bit sooner. This teaching and this belief can actually be traced back all the way to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation where Martin Luther, when he began studying, had huge problems with this practice because people would come to town, and I forget, they had a jingle that they would say, something about like, when in the pot your coins ring, a scoffer from Purgatory Springs, something along those lines. The idea was when you give money to the Catholic Church, what they were saying even back in the 1500s is that when you give money to the Catholic Church, that you can shorten your loved one's stay in purgatory. You, you can get them to heaven a little bit quicker. Who wouldn't want to do that? I mean, if that was true, who wouldn't want to do that? And the question was, well, how do you know if they're in purgatory or not? And guess what the answer is? You don't. So what does everybody do? They pay. They, they pay the money. And sometimes it's a lighting of a candle on a loved one's behalf. But all of this are things that they would say, you know what? We, we, we acknowledge that we do not see this anywhere in Scripture. But Scripture is not our sole authority. And so we have tradition. We have these other things. I have it. Do they believe that the more money you give, the quicker it is? Yes. Well, no, yes and no. It's not just about how much money you give. It's about how willing you are to sacrifice. So someone who doesn't have very much can give something, and someone that has a lot could give the same thing. This person is going to be counted for more because it's more of a sacrifice. Good question. Good question. All right. Um, C, they believe in purgatory. This is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1030, in case you're just interested to look it up on your own later. 
All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. All right, what do you all think when you hear that? Working your way in. All right, so here's a crucial difference between what they are saying and what we believe. You will never go to heaven based on your holiness. We go to heaven. We are granted access to heaven based on Christ's holiness. You will never get into heaven based on your righteousness. What allows us entrance to heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the issue is not how holy are you or how righteous are you. The question is, is Christ righteous enough and have I placed my faith and trust in him? Big difference. I mean, I know this is just talking about purgatory, but it kind of goes to the whole mindset of the Catholic Church's teachings that it is about what you can do and about you being good enough. If you're, not, if you're close but not quite good enough, you go to purgatory. And people can give, and they can get you out of purgatory sooner, but the key is you've got to be holy enough. Wrong. You will never be holy enough on your own. You will never be righteous enough on your own. It is all about the righteousness of Christ and what he has done, and whether or not you have placed your faith and trust in him. It's about Christ, not about you. So the question is, is Christ righteous enough? Absolutely. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop trying on my own. And I'm just going to come over here and say, my hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's his blood, his righteousness, not mine, and it's not yours. Huge difference between the teaching of the Catholic Church and what we believe the Bible teaches. D. Yeah. Um, yes. But I don't remember what that, her question was, did it ever used to be based on Scripture? And way back at the early onset, there was a Scripture passage that was used, twisted, but they quickly understood that that really wasn't substantive support, and so they began attributing it to tradition instead of Scripture because the argument fell apart, basically. Yeah? Not that I'm aware of. I haven't read the Apocrypha lately. Some groups do. Some groups would say Jesus was there for three days and he continued to pay the price. Um, but they don't, you won't hear that much anymore. Um, so again, the, the teaching of the Catholic Church has evolved some over the years. Um, here's another key belief, though. They believe that the priest can forgive sins. Catholic Catechism, page, paragraph 78. Who has the power to forgive sin today? All bishops and priests of the Catholic Church can forgive sin. What do you have to do to have your sins forgiven? You have to be truly sorry for them and confess them to a Catholic priest. Does the priest merely pray that your sins will be forgiven? No. Acting as God's instrument and ordained minister, he truly forgives the sins. So again, you see how blunt they are about that. So it's not just that you go and you confess your sin to a priest. That priest, as a minister of God, has been given by God the ability to determine whether, you're not, whether or not your sins are forgiven. So if the priest refuses to forgive your sin, guess what? You're in trouble. Or what they do, they find another priest. 
it's true. There are, there are stories throughout history of someone going and confessing and the priest saying, I don't think you're truly sorry, it's not forgiven. And they leave and go to another Catholic church and find another priest who says your sins are forgiven. It creates issues, right? It creates problems. Who do we believe can save sins? I mean, can save sins, forgive sins. So in the Old Testament, were there priests? Yes, there were priests in the Old Testament. When Jesus came, he was prophet, he was priest, and he was king. When the veil was torn in two at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, remember the veil being torn in two from top to bottom, the, we were granted, and Hebrews is all about this, Hebrew, Hebrews communicates over and over that when the veil was torn through the sacrifice of Christ, we were granted access to God to where it says that we can come boldly into the throne of grace, where we can f- confess our sins directly to God, all right? And this makes sense, right? What did God do to make payment for our sins? He sent Jesus. So who has the ability then to forgive our sins? The one who paid the price for our sins. All right, let me give you a couple other things and we'll wrap this up. E, they believe Holy Communion is the shortest and fastest way to heaven. Pope St. Pius X. They believe Holy Communion is the shortest and safest way to heaven. And that is a quote you'll notice. F, they believe that eternal life is a reward. What does that communicate when, he, when you say eternal life is a reward? It's earned, works-based. What do we believe? Eternal life is a gift given to us. Big difference. Now, when you hear it, you may not think that big of a deal, but when you, when you, when you start turning eternal life, or if we want to say it differently, the salvation that leads to eternal life, the forgiveness that leads to eternal life. When salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life is a reward, then the question is, have I done enough to be rewarded? All right, G, they believe that no one can know for sure if they are going to heaven. Why? You don't know if you've done enough. It's the same thing with all these other, a lot of these other religions. You don't know if you've done enough. So, Catholics, when they die, what's the last thing they do before a, 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 a practicing Catholic passes away? Last rites. Why do they do this? They don't want to go to purgatory. <laughs> they want to do all they can to be sure they go to heaven. And why do they do last rites when they're laying on their deathbed? Because they do not know if they have done enough. And since they do not know if they've done enough, I'm going to give it one last shot. Now, it may not, they may not communicate it quite like that, but that's in essence what is happening. H, they believe in Mary's assumption to heaven. Notice this um, quote from a survey of the Catholic faith. They believe that at the end of Mary's life on earth, Christ gave her victory over death and her body shared fully in his resurrection because Mary, according to them, never sinned. She was able to experience complete union with her son Jesus. And so with his resurrection, she experienced resurrection. She never tasted death. So um, let me close by by again, trying to present this as fairly and as accurately as I can. The question always comes up, and this is a sensitive question, this is a hard question, but let's, so listen carefully to everything I say. Will you? You promise? All right, the rest of you? The question always comes up, are Catholics going to heaven? 
And, this is, and I understand the sensitivity of this, and so I want to answer this as fairly but as honestly as I can, okay? If a, if a person, person holds to Catholic doctrine, Catholic tradition, as we have presented it here, these are the teachings of the Catholic Church. This is the doctrine of the Catholic Church. If a person is a Catholic and they believe what we have gone over this evening, the answer is no. Because they do not believe Jesus is the only way to heaven. They do not believe that faith in Christ is enough. So if you look at the Catholic teaching as I have presented this evening, and I believe I've presented it accurately and I believe I've presented it fairly, then the answer is no. A person who believes that Mary is the co-redeemer and co-mediator, a person who believes that with Scripture you have tradition in the Pope, a person who believes that Jesus is not the only way, a person that believes that infant baptism, this work of infant baptism, contributes to one's salvation, those are doctrines, those are beliefs that are completely opposed to saying Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. And, 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 Again, I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. If someone believes what the Catholic Church teaches, what, they, what their stated doctrine is, that's what they are basing their eternal life on, then they, the, the reality is they do not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. At the exact same time, I want to be careful to say that there are groups and segments under the umbrella of Catholicism that do not accept and believe everything as I have presented them this evening. There is a group, um, what was that? There's a group within Catholicism um, that hold to what they call new theology, where they reject some of the, the Catholic Church's teaching on justification and the need for baptism. So while I will very clearly and unapologetically say, if someone holds to the teaching of the Catholic Church as it is presented by the Catholic Church, then no, they do not have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. I will at the exact same time say that it is possible for someone to be a part of the Catholic Church, enjoy the tradition, enjoy some of the, the history of the Catholic Church, reject some of those core teachings, and have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So the question is, are, are there Catholics who are true believers? Yes, I believe there are. Do I believe that the Catholic Church teaches truth? No, I do not believe the Catholic Church teaches truth. Is it possible to be a member of a Catholic Church and reject some of those core teachings that we've gone over and truly have eternal life based on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Yes, it's possible. But again, at the exact same time, if someone believes everything that the Catholic Church teaches, then they are rejecting Christ as the only way. And if you reject Christ as the only way, then you do not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. So do you see, do you see both sides of this? At the exact same time, I would say, we would say that we are a part of um, Protestantism, Protestant Christianity. So just because you are a part of a Protestant church, does that guarantee that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? Right. So understand that the umbrella under which you may fall is no guarantee that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It is possible to be a member of a Baptist church and not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? So understand, again, I understand the sensitivity of this. Many times the emotion, I was teaching this one time and I had someone get so mad at me. And she said, you're telling me my mom did not go to heaven. And I don't pretend to be able to say who is and who is not in heaven. That is not my goal. That is not my job. That is not what I am here to do. My job is to look, though, and say this is what the Bible says. 
And this either lines up with the Bible or it doesn't line up with the Bible. And so if you follow the catechism of the Catholic Church, the teaching, the doctrine of the Catholic Church, it does not line up with the Bible. But I have known and I do know Catholics who are in the Catholic Church who hold to different theology, different doctrine. They do not accept all of this. They will say, no, I don't believe what they believe about justification. And talking with them, I believe they have a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. So we cannot just stand up and say, all Catholics, no Catholic has a relationship with God. We can't do that. Just like I'm not going to stand up and say, all Baptists are going to heaven. Right? So you understand where I'm coming from. Do you see the balanced perspective on this? Um, What I want you to walk away with is understanding that the core teachings of the Catholic Church do not align with Scripture. They don't. Um, And what it comes down to is what do you do with the person of Jesus Christ? That's the key thing. Any questions before we close in prayer? Super. This new theology? Well, you know, in some places around the world, the reason why they do not leave the Catholic Church is because to leave the Catholic Church means your family is going to turn their back on you. So what a lot of them will do is they will still attend Mass while rejecting what Mass stands for. They will still attend the church, rejecting some of the teachings of the Catholic Church so that they can maintain a relationship with their family. Now, I don't believe that is the right thing for them to do, um, but I'm not in that situation, and so I'm not going to judge them on that behalf. I I believe that if, I'm not going to be part of an organization that does not teach truth. And and that, that is a conundrum that many Catholics find themselves in. They, they find themselves in to where they want the relationship, and not everything in the Catholic Church is bad, and not everything in the Catholic Church is wrong. So they want to hold on to the tradition, they want to hold on to the family, they want to hold on to the things that are good, but yet they understand, just like Martin Luther did, some of the stuff they're teaching is just not right. Um, and so it puts a lot of them in a difficult place. And that's where I'm not standing in their shoes I will tell them what I think is right for them to do, but I'm not going to judge them and say, well, if you don't do what I think, then you don't have a relationship with God. That's not my position. My goal is simply to look and say, this is what the Bible teaches, this is what they teach, and this is where the differences lie. All right? So, the catechism, do they reference Scripture? Yes, they do. But many times the, referencing, the reference to Scripture is in Latin. Um, in fact, I, I went to a Catholic wedding one time, and the whole thing was in Latin, and I understood none of it. Um, well, there it, again, it depends on which Catholic church you go to. I mean, there there are different different traditions and different pockets of the world. Even here in the U.S., you go up into the Northeast, the Catholic Church operates differently than a Catholic church, say, in Alabama. Um, everything in Alabama operates differently, though, so that's okay. Um, but th- so there's going to be differences, um, and I, so I think you have to kind of. No, that's consistent across. So it does reference scripture. Um, no, this does not reference scripture that I've seen. It, it, let me back up. There are footnotes that have scripture passages. So, scripture is not embedded in it, but they are. There are passages of scripture that are footnotes. Yeah.
Well, it, it borders on, in, in a lot of those countries, it borders on idol worship because they'll have, they'll have statues of the saints that, saints that have been built, and they will kneel before them and pray to them. Um, and so there's a borderline there on, um, on idol worship. Yes, you had a question? Yes. Not that I know of. Um, now, again, does that mean there's not a pocket somewhere that does? And again, even with Catholicism, there's di- different groups, right? What are some different groups of Catholicism? You have Roman Catholicism, East and Orthodox. There's different groups. And there's a progressive group. There's a traditional group. There, I mean, you have different groups. So I, haven't, I don't know enough about it to say dogmatically yes or no, but not that I've heard of. Teaching or doctrine. Um, in fact, there are a lot of Protestant groups that use catechisms. In fact, Baptists have shied away from catechisms because they were used so heavily by the Catholic Church. I actually think they're a good thing. Um, and there are some Baptist catechisms that have been written, and it, it is designed to teach and train children all the way up what they believe. So there's questions and then there's responses. Um, and so there, there are some good catechisms out there. So I don't think we should avoid them just because there are some bad ones. But I th- we have to look at them each on their own merit. But it simply just means teaching or doctrine. Anything else? All right. Thank you all for listening. Let's have, let's have a word of prayer. Hey, you're welcome. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you f- again for the opportunity to study your word, for the opportunity to learn. God, you alone are judge. We cannot judge hearts. We cannot judge minds. All we can do is highlight your truth in your word as you have given it to us. And God, that's what we've tried to do this evening. Um, I pray that you would help us to understand um, ultimately that it's, what, it's, it's your word that matters. It's your truth that matters. And anything that does not align with your truth is then by default error. And so help us to be loving to other people of different belief systems, but at the same time, help us not to waver from the truth of your word. Help that to be our sole and final authority for our life, for our faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.